0: You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, this is going to be a different kind of Christmas sermon. Uh, when we moved into the Lincoln Theater, we decided as a team to uh, focus in this new season of ministry on the person of Jesus for our first season in here to put the spotlight on him. And we thought we would journey through his life as presented in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we knew that was going to bring some tension because as we approached Christmas in the narrative, we would be arriving at the cross at the time when most churches are focused on the manger. But we thought it's worth it. Let's go for it. And as we embrace that tension, we actually started to look forward to it. We thought, no, this is actually great. And why is that? Well, because at Christmas, we celebrate the reality that Jesus came. But it's only at the cross we fully understand the reason that Jesus came. Uh, At Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus is here. But it's at the cross we see why he's here. He is the boy who lived, come to die. (laughs) Now, let me tell you what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna preach this at you, okay? It's, it's too holy of a ground in some sense. I just wanna read this passage to you. We're gonna look at two chapters. It's about two pages of eight and a half by 11 pieces of paper. I'm gonna read these texts to you of the final hours of Jesus' ministry. The trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And like a tour guide, I'm just going to pause and explain to you the significance of some of what you're seeing. Uh, Because what I want to do here is my hope is that we will just see him, this King Jesus we celebrate at Christmas. What was he like and what was he here to do? So, starting in chapter 14, verse 1, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now we saw a couple of weeks ago that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for the Passover, that he rode into the temple at a time where the religious leadership of the nation was using religion for their own money and power. And Jesus condemned that. He would not be a part of it. And so he cleared out the temple of all their goods that they were selling at the most financially lucrative time of year to be selling them. And then he took up shop and began to preach every day in the center of the temple and while doing so condemned the leadership for their hypocrisy. And so here at these holy days of Passover, Jesus has shamed the religious leadership publicly and then he has hurt them financially. He's hit their wallet. And so what we see at the beginning of this chapter is they've had enough, they want him dead. The only question is, how? And it says that they have to do it by stealth. Why by stealth? Well, Mark explains, because they feared the people. That masses of people were hearing Jesus preach daily and they loved hearing him. So these leaders realized, he's become popular, we want him gone, but we're gonna have to get him by stealth. And here's where Mark does something interesting. This is the first two verses of chapter 14. But then Mark shows us their opportunity in verse 10. He says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. So they want him dead. They get an opportunity in verse 10. They got a man inside that can show us the right moment to come get him away from the crowd. And yet what's interesting is between those two explanations of what the leadership's planning, you get an eight verse gap. And you go, why is that? Why tell the story that way? Well, Mark wants to insert something in the center of significance. And you see in verse three, it says, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? That ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me, for you will always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could and has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She anoints Jesus, which is a sign of honor, and she does it with an expensive anointment the best she has and yet some in the room think it's too extravagant. You should have sold that and used the money for the poor. And Jesus stops him, says, no, she's done something good. And then it can sound to some people like he's denigrating the poor. Ah, you'll always have the poor. And, and he's not in any way diminishing those who are suffering. If, if anything, the whole ministry of Jesus, he's had a great compassion and sympathy for those who are poor. What he's telling his disciples is, you guys are missing the moment. You will have a moment to minister in my name, but you don't have much time left with me. You're missing the moment you're standing in right now. We're on the eve of my death. And he says, what she's doing is for my burial. Why is that significant? Because they're trying to sneak up on him by stealth, but he knows he's going to die. It's interesting. Mark will fill this whole section with irony. And here's the first one. They're trying to kill him by stealth, but he already knows they're coming. You don't sneak up on the king. That's the point. The other thing, though, is did you notice wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, What she did will be told. What's interesting is not only does he say, I know I'm going to die, he calls it gospel. That's the word good news. And when the good news of my death is spread around the world, we'll tell her story. What's strange about that is he just said, I'm going to die, and that's good news. Why is his death good news? Well, Jesus is about to explain. And you see in verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, the teacher says, where's my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, went to the city, found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born." Now, this meal of the Passover was a big deal. It's a highlight of the Jewish calendar. You'd gather your friends and family to eat at this meal. And Jesus wants to have all this meal prepared just so. And and if you noticed, they had to go back into the city of Jerusalem. You had to eat the Passover within its walls. Jesus, if you recall, was staying out in the suburbs every night, right? There are good people who do that. They commute into the city, you know, anyway. Uh, (laughs) Jesus came in, but he's gotta come back into the city for Passover. It's what's gonna put him in Jerusalem at night and be a prime place for him to be uh, taken later, but what's interesting here, if you notice too, he tells them one of you is going to betray me. Jesus will not be snuck up on. He knows he's going to be betrayed and killed, right? But notice the disciples don't all go Judas. They don't do it. They don't know. It's not like Judas was always walking around in the shadows. Do you notice the night light never shines on him? He's got like a cape on and with a little <laughs> cloak that he wears around. You're like, no, no, no. He wasn't sinister. Sometimes the most insidious person can look like a friend, and yet when they see themselves, they don't immediately start pointing at each other. They all intrinsically sense their own weakness and their own guilt. Is it me? That's the fear. And yet what Mark focuses on in Jesus, and what I want to focus on in this moment, is did you notice how much he repeated the word Passover? multiple times, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover. It's important to Mark that you associate what's about to happen with Jesus with the Passover. And I think it's important to Mark because it was important to Jesus. The Passover, if you don't know, it was this meal that you would celebrate as a highlight of the calendar every year as a Jewish people. And at that meal, you would retell the story of when God set his people free from slavery in Egypt through Moses and led them to the promised land. And all through that meal, there were different symbols and elements that retold the, the greatest of all rescue stories. And if you want just the basic components of that story, I would tell you three basic components. One was that death was coming. And if you look in the book of Exodus, you see that the nation of Egypt at the time held the Israelite people captive. And as they held them captive, they used them to build their cities. They would whip and abuse them to death. They instituted a policy of genocide, killing their babies to control population growth. And they rode on their backs in luxury while they exploited the Israelites and others. And Moses came to say, hey, enough. Judgment is coming. Death is coming. And yet death is coming for all who have sinned. And that's the second point. Death is coming and all are guilty. So if you're an Israelite, you praise God that judgment is coming, that death is coming into Egypt. And yet you realize, but the standard of holiness is God alone. And while the Egyptians may be more guilty than us, the Israelites realize, but we are not innocent either. They had exploited one another. They had worshiped foreign gods. The whole thing was a mess. And they realized if God's coming to judge, God doesn't grade on a curve. So I may be more holy than that person. But if God is coming to bring justice, we're all unjust. So death is coming and we're all guilty. That is a problem. And yet the third point of the Passover was this. But God provides a way of escape. God says, I am bringing my angel of death to come and to punish those who are guilty. And yet, what does God do? He says, there's a way for me to be just and punish sin, but to be the justifier and rescue. And he gives them a symbol. Sacrifice an innocent lamb and put its blood on the sides of your doorposts and on the top. And as you do that, it's a symbol. The blood of the innocent one will pay for your violation of my law. And as you put yourself by faith under my provision of sacrifice, death will pass over you and you will live. So death is coming and all are guilty, but God provides a means for his people to escape. And as they put themselves under the blood of the lamb, the angel of death went by and the people of God were able to leave Egypt and escape bondage. And so every year they would celebrate that story at this dinner. And Jesus as the host would take the different elements of the meal. And he had a script that they had followed for generations and generations. You were supposed to say, as you tell the story, as you got to the part of the bread, you were supposed to hold the bread up, thank God for it and say, this is the bread of the affliction our fathers ate in the Passover. But Jesus does something interesting. And verse 22, it says, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. He interrupts the script that they had done for generations and said, this is no longer just the bread of the affliction of our fathers. This is the bread of my affliction. I'm breaking for you. This great story that happened that was also a bigger symbol, it culminates in me. I will break for you to set you free. There were different cups you would drink, and you had a different script when you would hold them up. And when you held up the third cup of wine, you were supposed to say, may the all-merciful one make us worthy of the days of the Messiah. Jesus takes that cup, and it says in verse 23, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He doesn't say, may we be worthy of the days of the Messiah, the Christ, the hero of God's story. He says, this cup is about me, that these symbols point to the real of what I'm doing. And he says, this is my blood. I'm going to die. He knows it's coming. Poured out for many, my death will be vicarious. It will count for you. And it's the blood of a covenant. That's a binding agreement of friendship and love. What he's saying is the story of the Passover that we've been symbolically celebrating is coming to fruition now in that room and in this one. That the same components are true. Death is coming for us all, and that's still true. The death rate's what it's always been, one per person. And all of us are guilty, right? We know this about ourselves, and it's our guilt that makes death so scary. That's what Hamlet said when he was contemplating suicide, whether or not to be or not to be, how did he reconcile that decision? He said it was the dread of something after death. Uh, The undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns puzzles the will and makes us rather bear with those ills we have than fly to those we know not of. Thus conscience makes cowards of us all. He says what makes me scared of death is I know my conscience is unclean and I'm not ready to face God. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously con- uh, committing evil deeds, it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Death is coming. We're all guilty. This is the bad news. And yet God has made a way of escape. Not through a Passover lamb, that was the symbol, but Jesus said, That symbol points to me. My blood will pay for you. The debt you've incurred, I will pay. I will step in and be the substitute that if you come up under my shed blood, death passes over you and you will live. Christ is the Passover lamb to be sacrificed. As he points to his impending death, he says, don't think that I'm gonna be a martyr in unfortunate circumstances. This is all by God's plan. Like Isaiah 53 said generations ago, he was wounded for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, each his own way, but God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now before we move into his trial and crucifixion, let me say this. Mark will do something interesting the others don't do. As Matthew and Luke start to show you the injustice of Jesus's trials and the brutality of his crucifixion, they keep giving you breaks from the chaos of it all and reminding you this was to fulfill what was said in scripture. This was what Jesus said would happen. This is what the prophet said. It had to be this way. They're kind of comforting you with God's divine plan over the injustice we're about to see. Mark won't do that. He'll just let you feel the crazy of the next few hours. And yet he gives us this moment to let us see. Jesus told them beforehand what this all was for. And the question is, can you remember God's promises when the pain comes? Can you keep his perspective as the chaos ensues? Mark won't remind us again. He'll just let us walk through what happens next. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It was common to sing Psalms 116 through 118 at the end of the Passover. So the last song Jesus sang with his disciples was Psalm 118, which had lines like, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the last line of the song was bind the sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. The meal is over. The sacrifice now moves. Verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall in a, You will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Thanks, Peter, if you're standing there. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They make promises of fidelity, but Jesus knows I have to face my fate alone. I will be struck. You will be scattered. But when I come back, I'll gather you. He knows it's not the end. Christianity is not about what you can accomplish as you muster up your courage to serve God. You can't do it. It's about what the king does on our behalf. In verse 32, as they went to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going on a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, for they did not know, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, why does Mark linger here? He skips the songs, doesn't tell us what they're singing, but he gives us this long moment of Jesus's turmoil in the garden. I think he does this because we have to understand that Jesus will be a sacrifice for us. In order to, be, to meet the standard of God, he has to be God himself. But in order to be our substitute, he has to be fully human. And I think what Mark wants us to see here is Jesus' humanity on display. He's distressed. He's scared and he falls on his face and begins to beg God, please let this cup pass from me. Why the imagery of a cup? It shows up several times in the prophets, most notably Isaiah 51. God calls the judgment of God, the cup of staggering. And he tells his people, I will make you drink the cup of my wrath against your sin. And Jesus understands, I will drink it in their stead. And he says, I don't want to do it. He has known nothing but intimate connection with God, whom he calls here Abba, Father. You're my dad. And the idea of being separated from God is so terrifying to him. He says, if there's any other way, let it be so. And yet even as he's honest about that turmoil, he resolves to follow the will of his father even to the end. But not my will, but yours be done. There's whole sermons that should be preached about this moment. He is the model of humanity, and I would just say he's the model of masculinity. He's honest about his feelings. I'm distressed to the point of death. He calls friends to help him in the hour of need. That's not weakness, that's wisdom. And yet even when his friends fail him, where he ultimately falls is the bedrock of the character of his father. I will not react out of my emotions. I'll not resent my friends. I will put my life in the hands of my father, God. I will rise up and face my destiny to serve others and sacrifice for myself. That is true masculinity. That's our king on display. That's our king. And in that moment, he steps bravely to his destiny. And immediately, verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes to the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Why did they not recognize him? Because this is the middle of the night. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and he seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Jesus knows he was going to be betrayed and captured. And so in that moment, as he asks the question, he's just challenging them. Why are you guys doing this at night? You saw me every day. Why are you bringing all these clubs and swords like you're coming up against a brigand? I think you need to analyze what you're doing. Why do you feel the need to move under the cover of dark? And yet he says, but let scripture be fulfilled. But he doesn't quote any. Because again, Mark's not going to help us. He's going to see, can you recall the promises of God in the midst of your pain? And yet in that moment, what happens? Jesus is resolute. He's betrayed with a kiss. You ever felt betrayed? Jesus knows what that's like. His followers who swore fidelity fled in the moment of danger. You feel abandoned? Behold your king. And then we hear about even this young kid running away naked. What's that about? Well, A lot of commentators think that's Mark inserting himself. We find out later that Mark's mom had a house that the early church would meet in. It's in the book of Acts. And so, presumably, Mark was someone that was familiar with this community, maybe snuck out as a kid to watch what was happening. And yet, as people began to bear down on Jesus, he ran away, even in the most shameful way possible. Mark wants to let you know I was one of those that abandoned the king in his hour of need. Mark sees his need for grace. Mark, who has used the word immediately all through his gospel, will not use it again. As Friday approaches, he slows the narrative down. And you see in verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now, they had to rush to arrest him when they had actionable intel. He's alone at the middle of the night, so there's no crowds, so they get him. The problem is they arrest him, but they have no charge. So as they bring him together, they have to come up with a crime that justifies the arrest. But the problem was, according to Jewish law, you have to have two or more witnesses agree. And they run into a problem. They can't get two guys to agree. So this trial is falling apart even before it begins. And so you see in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? They have no charge. They have no reliable witnesses. They ask him to answer. But how are you going to answer false charges? So Jesus remains silent. And at this point, this trial is over. They have no charge. They have no witnesses. All Jesus has to do is remain silent. And this whole drama ends. And so in a moment of desperation, the high priest who cannot implicate Jesus for a crime asks Jesus to implicate himself. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? All Jesus has to do is be silent. Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Before, when he talked about his role as Messiah, he would be a little mysterious about them that they figured it out. Now he quotes Psalm 110 and Daniel 7. I am that Messiah. And just to be clear who we're talking about, you sit in judgment on me now, but I will sit on the throne of God and judge you and all humanity. Jesus goes hard in the paint with his answer. And in that moment, verse 63, the high priest tore his garments, a sign of great indignation, and said, what further witnesses do we need? You heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemn him as deserving death. They got the conviction they needed because Jesus gave it to them. The irony here, they condemn him for blaspheming without ever stopping to consider that his claim of being Messiah might actually be true. And they began to spit on him to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They mock him, they spit on him, and they mock him as a prophet. Verse one of chapter 15. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now Judea in this day was a subject nation under Rome. Uh, Their Roman prefect, Pilate, wasn't normally in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea Maritima. But in days like the Passover, where millions of people gathered in the city, he would come to preside over it. And so now they have another problem. We can't murder this man with the limited autonomy we have with our Roman leader in town. If we want to kill him, we need the Romans to do it. And there's a lot that goes on in this trial that Mark will skip, that Matthew and Luke will give us the details. And Mark's not wrong. Mark is the one that's going quickly. He's quick to the point. Matthew and Luke will essentially take Mark's uh, outline and give us more detail about how these different parts of the trial take place. Mark is in a hurry. That doesn't make either untrue. It would be like if you came back from a movie, a couple of you, and I said, how was the movie? Tell me the story. You would pick and select different parts to summarize, different parts to quote exactly. You may not be lying, you're just emphasizing different parts for different reasons. And here Mark will emphasize a few pieces and we will stay along with Mark. And as Mark is talking about this, he says, as soon as it was morning, the trial before the religious leaderships council was probably somewhere around 2 a.m. That makes this about 5-6 a.m. This was a common Roman occurrence you can see in other ancient writings, that they would hold their court as soon as there was sunrise. That's probably why the religious trial was in the middle of the night because they knew we got a hold of this guy the crowd loves. We need to deal with this quickly. Let's get him to be the first one on the docket as soon as the sun rises so we can get him out and killed before the crowd knows what it is we're up to. And so here they bring him to Pilate at the beginning of the morning, bound and led, which is a little excessive for a nonviolent preacher, but there's probably some theater here. Now, Mark feels no need to explain who Pilate is. Mark's audience was probably Roman, and they'd be familiar with a Roman prefect. Matthew explains more about him, but evidently the Romans knew about him. He had ruled over this area for seven years up to this point. He'll rule three more after. And he belonged to a set of administrators that were often put over areas that were seen as problematic. And when you were put over those areas, you had three jobs. Keep the peace, collect taxes, neutralize any threats to the empire. How you went about doing that, there was some latitude. And Pilate, we found out from history, was harsh in his judgment. Um, Philo said about him that he was a man of inflexible, stubborn, and cruel disposition. Jesus tells one story about Pilate and Luke, where he says he mingled the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. He could be cruel. Actually, his cruelty is what will get him fired in three years. And here in this moment, they bring him before Pilate, and we don't get what accusation they say to Pilate. Uh, Other gospels tell us, but what's interesting is Mark assumes you'll pick it up by Pilate's response in verse two. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Before the Sanhedrin, Jesus had been accused of blasphemy, disrespecting God by claiming equality with God. That was a religious crime, but not a political one. Rome couldn't care less and wasn't interested in it. So to get Rome to kill him, they can't accuse him of being the Messiah. Rome won't care. So they have to transpose his crime into a political key because king of Jews was a political designation. It's the title Mark Antony gave to Herod the Great, uh, and so here they were saying, hey, this guy is claiming to be a ruler. This guy is an insurrectionist and a threat to Rome because now Pilate has to take up a case like that. The irony here is that they despised Jesus because they wanted a Messiah who came with political power to overthrow the Romans. Jesus was not that. And so they put him on trial as a political power who's trying to overthrow Rome. And in this moment, Pilate asks a question. And in Greek, if you want to emphasize a word, you can change word order. The word you put at the front of the sentence usually has emphasis. And so Pilate says, you're king of the Jews? There's a hint of mockery to it. As they bring this beaten man alone, he looks at him and he's like, that guy is running an insurrection? He doesn't see the threat. And what's interesting is he asks the question to Jesus. It's a simple yes or no question. You're the king of the Jews? If Jesus says no, trial's over, get out of here. If he says yes, trial's over, we kill you. Jesus answers, and he answered him, you've said so. Jesus says, you say, which is very confusing. But what he's doing is saying, I'm not denying the title, but not maybe the way you're selling it or they're selling it. And so yes, but not the way you think. And the way he answers forces the trial to continue. In verse three, the chief priests accused him of many things. In verse four, the Pilate asked again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. In the Greek, they strengthened the negative. It says Jesus was absolutely silent, surrounded by hostility and unbelief. He looks like what Isaiah prophesied. Like a sheep before its shearer is silent. So he opened and not his mouth. This is not normal. And it unnerves Pilate. Most people, when you're brought forward to be executed, begin to blubber, begin to cry, begin to beg for your life. And here as they shout accusations, Jesus has an eerie calm. And Pilate says, Whatever this is, I don't want to deal with this guy. We find out from other gospels, he tries to hand them off to Herod. Let one of your people deal with him. Herod sends him back. He realizes, I have to deal with this guy because he's being called a threat to Rome, but I don't see it. John tells us a bit more about their conversation, where Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. Jesus said, but if you listen to truth, you listen to me. And Pilate answers by saying, what is truth? And what you realize is, Pilate doesn't care about what's true. He just wants to get this off his desk, and he wants to not have a mob. He has to control the populace, but he realizes this guy's not a threat. He's saying he has an otherworldly kingdom, and I don't really want to be the puppet of these leaders who want to execute this guy, so how am I going to deal with this? And in the midst of that, Pilate realizes he discovers a loophole. And you see in verse 6, it says, now with the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. John notes this was a favor during the Passover the idea being, hey, it's your Passover. You celebrated your release from bondage from the Egyptians. So we as benevolent Romans will release one of your prisoners to show you how gracious we are as your rulers. That's the idea. And here it says, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. So again, this pilot is at, this trial uh, trial's at sunrise, very early in the morning, and a crowd begins to gather. Why is there a crowd there? Because they want him to do what they normally does, namely release a prisoner. So these are people who were here because they have someone in prison they want to get out. And the way Mark constructs this, it seems like they're there for Barabbas, that he was maybe a Robin Hood to them, sticking it to Rome on their behalf right? This isn't a crowd that's here for Jesus. They don't even know he's been arrested. It's interesting because some people will say, it's wild that within a week, the whole city turned on Jesus. The whole city did not. The whole nation of Israel did not. Why was this happening at night? Because they knew the people liked him. And so they're rushing this. And yet here a crowd comes and Pilate sees this as an opportunity. I don't have to decide. This is when y'all release people anyway. And so he... Uh, answers them in verse nine saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He sees this as an opportunity. I can kill two birds with one stone here. I don't think this guy's guilty. I don't want to deal with this. Hey, y'all want to release somebody? How about this guy? And it says, he offered them the king of the Jews, verse 10, for he had perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. What he's trying to do is call their Bluff that these chief priests who he did not work well with, had come to him and said, you need to kill this guy, he's a threat to Rome. And he's sitting there going like, you guys are trying to do me a favor? A, I don't buy that. B, I don't buy this guy's a threat. You wanna stop a threat? You wanna stop an insurrection? Okay, here's Barabbas, a clear insurrectionist, someone who killed Romans. You wanna stop an insurrection? Set one of them free. Who are you gonna set free? The clear insurrectionist you're trying to save me from? Or this sweet guy who hadn't done anything. And Pilate thinks he's checkmated them by putting in front of them, who do you want? The preacher of love and nonviolence who wants to preach the truth or the man who's used violence to get power. Barabbas means Bar-Abbas, son of the father. Which son of the father do you want? One who is preaching peace or one who is using violence? Verse 11, and the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. We choose violence. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? He seems surprised by their offer. And he realizes, I've got to quell this mob. What do you want me to do with this guy? And they cried out again, crucify him. Crucify him. That, that's not a normal execution. That's torture. Uh, that was a tool used by the Romans to make an example of you. And so it confuses Pilate. And he says to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. The choice is ironic. Here are two saviors. Here are two sons of the father. One who deserves to die, that cross was probably for him today. He will be, Jesus will be crucified between two robbers. And yet they set the sinner free and the is condemned to take his cross. He takes the sinner's place, the true son of the father takes the place of the sinful one. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate makes a tactical mistake. The crowd's riled up. He's got to solve this. And notice, wishing to satisfy the crowd. This isn't about truth. This isn't about justice. This is about pacifying a mob. And so what does he do? He delivers Jesus over Mark doesn't go into detail about scourging. I won't either. It was a man who was beaten with a whip, and it was a whip that usually was plated at the end with bone chips and metal so it would shred the flesh. Uh, Josephus, the historian who saw this done, said it would make people's entrails visible at times. Often you would die from the experience. Notice Mark says, having been scourged. We find out from the other gospels that He had done that previously thinking that would pacify the bloodlust of the crowd. You didn't normally scourge someone, then crucify them. He thought, I'll beat this guy up a little bit and they'll be done. And yet, no, they call for more. They call for his crucifixion. And now after being scourged, he's been delivered over. Now let me stop here and do what Mark will not. Jesus three times in Mark 8 and 9 and 10 tells them, I will be delivered over to the councils. I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. He repeats that word, delivered over. Mark will not remind you of the words of Jesus. He will not remind you of the words of the prophet, but he keeps using the same verb to see if you remember. This is unjust. It's a kangaroo court. It's a trumped up charges. This is wrong. Yes, but he told you he'd be delivered over. In the midst of the chaos and pain, there is a God who rides above the storm. And yet in the midst of this, he's handed over now to the Gentiles. Gentiles. Scourging of a Galilean was probably fun for these Romans as much about sticking it to the Jewish people as it was sticking it to Jesus. There was tension in the city. What better way to take it out on than someone who claimed to be their leader. And so they mock all the elements of kingdom. Kings wore purple and they give him a purple cloak. Kings wore crowns and were often depicted in artwork as having a shining aura because they were connected to deity. They give him a crown of thorns. They drive into his head. And here they hand him a reed instead of a scepter, but then they would take it from him and beat him with it as they spit on him and they mocked him by saying, hail king of the Jews. Yet in other irony here, what they say in mockery is actually true. And yet here stands our king, anointed with spit, crowned with thorns, about to be enthroned on a cross. In verse 21, they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Cyrene's in North Africa, Simon's the Jewish name. This man was coming in to worship. Suddenly he finds himself carrying the cross of the Messiah. And the only reason I mention this here is because notice Mark says, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus, which we're like, what? Who's Alexander and Rufus? But if I told you, oh, Brennan's sister, you might go, oh, if you know Brennan, makes sense, right? And so he's like, hey, Simon, you know Alex's dad. What's the assumption there? That the early church in Mark's audience knew Alex and Rufus. And he's telling the story, their dad is the one who carried the cross. This is rooted in reality. This isn't just a story. This happened. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. It's a narcotic, and he refuses to as they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what he should take. Again, crucifixion is not an efficient way to kill someone. It's actually designed to to draw out their excruciating pain. Nails are driven through nerve endings. As you're hung up, you have to struggle to breathe and press against those nails. It's interesting, though, if you notice, Mark does not give you all those details. Mark doesn't point your eyes at his nail-pierced hands. Mark doesn't point your eyes at his struggle to breathe. Mark doesn't even give the verb crucify its own sentence. He says, and they crucified him and divided his clothes and cast lots for them. Do you notice that? Mark says, while they're crucifying him, don't look up, look down at the guy shooting dice for his shirt. Why? Why is that the detail that matters to Mark? Well, again, Mark's not gonna tell you. He's gonna see if you remember what Psalm 22 said centuries ago. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mark is tipping his hand to see if you remember. He said it had to be this way. It has to be this way. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. Mark wants to be clear what he's being killed for, his claim to be the Messiah, the king. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who crucified with him also reviled him. The interesting irony there is the word derided that they're doing is the word blasphemio. It's where we get blasphemy. That Jesus is condemned for blasphemy, and yet they are the ones who are actually blaspheming him. When Peter in chapter eight told Jesus he shouldn't go to the cross, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Here they command him, get off the cross if you're really the king. What they're commanding is satanic and they don't know what they're doing, that they're actually the ones blaspheming the true king. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the moment of the end, the lights go out. Amos says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make the time like morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, In a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why doesn't he translate that? Uh, This book was written in Greek for the common man among all nations. And yet Jesus speaks Aramaic like the Jews of the time. And yet Mark gives us the Aramaic rather than directly translating it right away. Why do that? I think he wants us to see, as he says, Eli, Eli, they think he's calling for Elijah. And so he wants you to see their mistake, but he also wants us to see what it is Jesus was actually saying. He was saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which if you're just reading that, you could say, was that a cry of despair? Was that a cry of a loss of hope? But what you understand, again, if you're paying attention, is no, he's quoting the same song Mark just sampled earlier in the verse. It's the same Psalm 22. That centuries ago in the Psalm of the Messiah, it opens with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See those who mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was written centuries before. And yet the song does not end in despair. It ends with this same murdered servant saying, but I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you and all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before him for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Done what? Wherever the gospel's preached in the whole world, this will be told, right? He's saying, I am fulfilling what was t- said back in Psalm 22. Some of the bystanders heard him and said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. They clear out his mouth so he can speak more clearly, but he doesn't give them what he wants. In verse 37, uttering a loud cry, he breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That curtain was the curtain in the temple. There's a little confusion here because there were two main curtains in the temple. There was one that separated the holy of holies, the symbol of no one can be with God because he's holy and we're not, separated it from the Jewish court where sacrifices were made. But there was another curtain that separated the Jewish court, where sacrifices were made before the Holy of Holies, from the court of the Gentiles, the nations. And they were allowed to be even further from God. So which curtain was torn? There's some debate about it. Which one? The significance that Mark wants to point out is that the curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. A human can't do that. It's too tall. You'd have to start at the bottom. God rends open the curtain and opens away. Which one? Which one? Did he open a way to the Holy of Holies where we can be with God again? Yes. The New Testament tells us that that's what Jesus came to do, that he is the curtain we enter into the Holy of Holies. And yet he told us too, this will be a gospel told to the whole world. Part of me thinks it's that second curtain that rips open that says, I have now made a way for the nations to know me that men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation can have peace with God because behold, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And as soon as that curtain rends, a centurion, a Roman soldier who had nailed his hands to the wood watches the way that man dies, not blubbering, not cursing his enemies, not spitting on others as was so common in that day, but entrusting his heart to God and even praying for his enemies. And when he watches him die, he says, I've never seen a man act like that. Truly, that is the Son of God. And the declaration Mark opens his gospel with is now being proclaimed by a Gentile Roman soldier. That's the Son of God. That's the true King. Behold our King enthroned on a cross, the Passover lamb for you and for me. And Joseph of Arimathea a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Let me wrap up here. Everybody okay? You got it? You all right? Let me give you a couple points and we'll get of here. What are we meant to think about when we focus on all of this? Which thank you for hanging in there. Number one, I think it shows us the heinousness of sin that it has to be paid for. God doesn't wink or cover it over. Jesus said, if there's any other way to reconcile with God, let this cup pass. Why did he have to drink this? Because there was no other way. It's not believe in a crucified Messiah or, you know, try your best. No, the stain of sin goes too deep. And so it was required this. I think it also shows us the justice of God. Many of us have had sins perpetrated against us and you wonder, will I ever get justice? What the cross shows you is no one gets away with anything. God may delay his justice, but it will come. Death is coming and all are guilty and it will be paid for. Every debt will be reconciled. It will either be paid on the cross by Jesus or by us in hell. And yet here we see Jesus Christ has made a way. We see the love of God that God sees the heinousness of our sin, he is just and cannot look at it, but rather than casting us away, Jesus Christ says, but I will come and shed my blood for you. Come stand under this Passover lamb. I will take death so your destruction passes by so I can be just and punish sin, but the justifier that saves sinners like you and me, like Romans at the foot of the cross. We have hope today because of what our king accomplished on that cross. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, Herod, and Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yes, evil men perpetrated evil things, but God ruled over it all. And God used even the sinfulness of these men accomplish our salvation. That for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but have life. So what is our hope? It's in the person of Jesus. What is our call today? My call to you is to be like Joseph of Arimathea. He was intrigued by Jesus for a while. We find out in other gospels he would listen to him, but he was scared of association with him because of what that might cost him socially. He wanted to be Jesus' secret friend. But when he saw his king lay down his life for him, it said he took courage and went to Pilate. Why did that take courage? Well, you associate with the guy Rome murders, they may just murder you. I will put my life on the line because he went first. And Joseph says, I want him can I take his body and bury it? Normally people got away from crucified people. He says, I wanna be near him. I associate myself with that man. And he had to walk outside the city. And when you take a body down off a cross, it does not help you. He has to pull that body down. And as its weight falls upon him, the blood and the sweat and the tears of Jesus covered that man. And I want you to be like that. To say, if Jesus gave all for me, I'm going with him. And I am not going to be marked by my sin and my shame anymore. But I have courage to say, if my king died for me, then I'm living for him. And I want his blood to cover over my sin. I want what he gave to be a gift for me. I want to be reconciled to God, bound together in a covenant of love because his blood was poured out for many. And I want to join the chorus in Revelation that says, worthy are you because you were slain and by your blood purchased men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And I want to be counted among those who sing praise to the lamb who gave all for me. If you were encouraged by today's talk, Be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thank you for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.